Okay, so praise God, it is, uh, it is May 2nd, it's 2012, our message this evening is uh, Ancient Accounts, and uh, your subtitle is Nephilim, Ancient Accounts and Nephilim, turn with me to Genesis 3, this will not be a message that you want to tune out, uh, you, you won't want to go walk to your car to get something, this is, this is worth sitting still, getting all of your notes on, Amen. So here we go in Genesis 3. Um, we have the 14th verse. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity. Uh, I have a hard time saying that. Warfare. Between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Earlier in the first chapter, the 28th verse, the uh, man had been told to be fruitful, to multiply. What we find out early on in the book of Genesis is that there would be this struggle. There would be a struggle to produce life. The man and the woman would produce life. And that that life would struggle against some unseen force represented by this serpent. That that struggle would occur, but it would occur as life came forward from the woman. Does anybody know what Eve is Hebrew for? Mother, Mother of all the living. Adam named her according to her function. Her function would be that she would birth life. She literally not only birthed the next uh, generation... But she birthed the hope of life because there would be a human being that would come from this woman. There would be a descendant of Adam and Eve. Not, not anything else. A descendant from Adam and Eve that would crush the power of the enemy. But do you know who else heard that promise? I mean, who was the promise spoken to? Was the promise spoken to Eve here? Who's being addressed? No, it's not even Adam. It's the serpent who's being addressed. It is quite literally the enemy that is being told the proclamation of the gospel. The enemy is being told, hey, this is what's going to happen. Somebody's going to come from her and he's going to put a stomping on you. Right? I mean, we need to get that right. We present this very often as, man, the first prophecy about Jesus given to Adam and Eve. Well, it's really not. They're listening, but it's given to the enemy. We serve a God who will tell the enemy in advance, hey, I'm going to whip you six ways from Sunday, and it's going to start in just a little while. Here's how it's going to happen. Now stand back, ready, 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 now take it. I mean, he, he is pretty amazing. But he's not, uh, he's not without opposition. The word Hebrew, in Hebrew, uh, Satan, uh, it's not like Dana Carvey said it as the, as the church lady. It's actually a Hebrew word, and it means accuser, and opposition, that force that stands against you. You wanted to name this power? His name in Hebrew was Satan. He was being told that he would be overcome by someone. The seed of the woman. Now we're going to get to a, 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 a scripture that's not obscure. You don't have to get six chapters into the Bible to get there, and yet it's debated as all get out in our time and was not debated at all in the ancient world. Go to the sixth chapter of Genesis. <coughs> the theme here being that God spoke to the enemy and said, this is what I'm going to do. And the enemy heard it. 
Come on now. If Stephen said, I'm going to stand up and punch you right in the face, wouldn't you at least clench your fist, get them out of your pockets? Mm. Would, would you brace yourself, have, have a certain stance so that maybe you didn't go down with the first shot? I mean, when you're threatened, isn't there usually some response? Well, how do all schoolyard fights start? One pushes the other one and something snaps, right? Mm. Well, I believe the enemy was put on notice here, and he had a response to it. Are y'all in Genesis 6? When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Do you hear two different terms here? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men. Well, were the men not uh, offspring of other men? Do you hear? One is the offspring of God, it says. Sons of God, and the other is the offspring of who? Men. Men. These are two categories that are being spoken of. In the Greek here, which I, I realize I always quote the Hebrew in the Older Testament, but know that in around the year 300, the uh, Jewish world was largely speaking Greek because Alexander had come in and forced the world to speak Greek. Have y'all ever heard of the Greek Septuagint? Yeah. This is the translation so that the Greek-speaking world would know what the Hebrew said. And LXX is a fancy way to say the 70. They took the 70 finest scholars and they translated the Hebrew text into the Greek language. This is something that's available online. It's something that you can read in a good Bible study uh, software. Everywhere the word sons of God appears in the Greek text, do you know how the Hebrew men translated it? Angels. Everywhere. And this is because right here we're speaking about something obviously other than men. Watch this. When the men began, began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. By the way, that word um, married there, when we think of married, what do we think of? You think of a lifelong commitment, right? You better think of it that way. If you think of it some other way, you've you got a wrong view. The NIV is cleaning up this concept. This is more the other term that we would say like, maybe cohabitated. Does that make sense? One implies a relationship, the other implies uh, a physical act. This implies the physical act. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be one hundred, will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. This raises all kinds of questions. If you wonder what sons of God are, then you have to wonder also what are Nephilim. In more modern times, meaning the last few hundred years, there's been a trend in scholarship to explain away anything supernatural. So if the Bible says that the Red Sea was split and that Israel crossed, then the modern trend is to go, 
you know, there's probably a wind, sometimes there's volcanic activity, uh, it could have been a tsunami somewhere else that sucked the water out. They can't explain the dry ground, though. They can't explain how if the water dropped to four or five inches, uh, Pharaoh and his army were drowned, and we just are supposed to ignore all of the details because they don't believe in the supernatural. So these scholars have taken this passage and said, you know, the sons of God must refer to the righteous line of Seth. Now, there's an interesting part here. Did Seth have children in the Bible? Was Seth a righteous person? Yes, but why on earth would you apply this interpretive key, if you will? Is there any reason to apply it other than you're confused about what it says or don't like it? No rabbi, nowhere, not anywhere in time, ever had the view that sons of God referred to the line of Seth. Before the year 500 in Christian history, no, uh, Justin the Martyr, for instance, he didn't believe that. Irenaeus, he didn't believe that. No early church father ever proposed that. It didn't come into play till well after the year 500 AD. What if we just looked at what it actually says? If sons of God are translated as angels everywhere else, and it's being contrasted with the daughters of men here, is it possible that something supernatural left its heavenly estate and did something it was not supposed to do? See, this is a more complex view of the heavens, though. Uh, the idea that there could be defections is a more complex view. Keep your finger here, and I would like to show you a scripture. Turn with me to Job. You're going to keep your finger here because we have to come back, and in the sake of time, we want to make it quickly. Turn with me to Job. And why don't you reside in the fourth chapter for a second while I find the verse? Look at the 17th verse. Can a mortal man be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more are those who live in houses of clay? God charges his what with error? Angels. While you're in the book of Job, since we're there, why don't you turn to the 15th chapter? Tell me when you get there. Look at the 14th verse. What is man that he could be pure? Or one born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt? Did we just hear the oldest book in the Bible insinuate twice that the heavens and maybe even the angelic realm were not completely free from error? Then why do we need some strange interpretive key that would tell us this is not angels? What reason would we have to believe that other than we don't believe in supernatural? So let's go back then and look at sons of God and see if they're angels what it's describing. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the angels saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. He is mortal, and his days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. How did they get there? When the angels went to the daughters of men and had children by them. It's interesting to note then that the word Nephilim, it's Strong's number 5303. There are a lot of ways.
is to interpret Nephilim. When you do etymology on a word, it's, it's something that you have to decide. Well, it's compound. This word means this, and this word means that. Perhaps that's how they came up with it. Some people say that Nephilim means fallen ones, and I, I certainly could see how it would mean if an angel left a heavenly estate and produced a child, and you wanted to identify that child, could you call the child a fallen one? Maybe so. Again, in the time of Alexander, they translated this Hebrew word Nephilim into something, though. They translated it into the Greek text in the Septuagint, which Jesus quoted, by the way. You know what the word was? Gigantes. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Mm. But what, what English word sounds like gigantes? Sounds like giant, it sounds like gigantic, doesn't it? Gigantes has two possible meanings. One is of the earth, as in corrupt, or the most obvious one is giant. What if both are correct? What if all three are correct? What if it is a fallen one who is of something corrupt in the earth that is a giant? Isn't that interesting? What, what on earth would be the motive if we're just going to speculate for a moment before we read more scripture that makes it clear? What on earth would be the motive of heavenly powers corrupting the seed of a woman? You know, if you want to breed Labradors, like maybe a family in here is looking for Labrador puppies, right? Labradors are beautiful animals, aren't they? What happens if my little weenie dog is allowed to try to cohabitate with a Labrador? Hmm? We might have an ugly Labrador, aren't we? In fact, you might not even be able to walk up to that thing and say, you know, that's a Labrador. In fact, at some point, if you get too far from the species, you end up with something other than species, don't you? See, the Bible's very clear. Laws of genetics were laid down and said each will give birth according to its kind. So if we have something that is heavenly, that is defective, some son of God, some angel, and he produces a child with a woman, that's not Adam's descendant anymore. Two Labradors make a Labrador. <coughs> a weenie and a Labrador make something altogether different, don't they? Yeah. Now today we have all kinds of designer breeds and we like that. But if you wanted to make the unchanging nature of your, your promise very clear, if you wanted to identify it to not only the human race, but a specific family, something like Israel, maybe out of the tribes of Israel, something like the tribe of Judah. Maybe if we're going to go from the tribe of Judah, we could even get so specific one day as to say the baby and Mary. You would need to know that that was a human being. You would need to know that they were authentically descendant from Adam. It seems that there was a plot underfoot. I would like to show you one other thing before we move forward. Look at what God says about Noah. This is the ninth verse of the sixth chapter. This is the account of Noah. <coughs> Noah was a righteous man. Now, I just preached about uh, Zedekah. I preached about that this last Sunday. Zedekah has to do with righteous actions. The word here is uh, Zedek. It means righteous. It has to do with your moral character. It has to do with the way that you act. Noah was a righteous man. This is how we've always read this. But what is the next word? Noah was a righteous man. What's that next word? Blameless, Blameless in the NIV. Uh, King James, if you prefer King James, says perfect. What an interesting thing. Was he perfect or is he blameless? And what does that mean? Well, while the first word is Zadik, 
and it, it has to do with moral character, the second word is not. The second word <coughs> is come in. In Strong's number 8549, more than 50% of the time, more than 49 occurrences in the Bible, you know what it refers to? An animal sacrifice that is acceptable because it does not have a physical blemish. What if we were referring to not only Noah's character, but the fact that he was purely, authentically, completely pure as a descendant of Adam? If you were going to wipe out everything on the earth and start again because it was morally corrupt and perhaps even physically corrupt, you would want to start again with a man that could be called righteous morally and a man that could be called blameless, perfect, pure, physically. Now this is a little different story than we usually hear presented in Genesis, isn't it? Yeah, I get that. And I understand why preachers stay away from it. I understand why maybe it's not popular, but I would like to tell you that none of the ancient writers stayed away from it. I want, I want you to hear what... Everybody quotes Josephus, right? I mean, all preachers quote Josephus, and it seems that he's authoritative unless you disagree with him. <laughs> this is what he says about Genesis 6. For many... This is in the book of the Antiquities of the Jews. It's book 1, right? Book 1 because we're writing about the first book in the Bible. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians call giants. Now you're not losing me in the King James-like English, are you? He just plainly said that Genesis 6 contains an account of the angels cohabitating with women and producing something that the Greeks call giants. But Noah was very uneasy as what <clears throat> they did. And being displeased at their conduct, attempted to persuade them to change their dispositions and their acts for better behavior. But seeing that they did not yield to him, but were slaves to their wicked pleasures, he was afraid that they would kill him, together with his wife and children, and that those they had married. So he departed out of the land. Now God loved this man for his righteousness. Yet he not only condemned those other men for their wickedness, but determined to destroy the whole corrupted race of mankind and to make another race that should be pure from wickedness. This is what Josephus, a contemporary of Jesus, said about Genesis 6. The plain language of his commentary seems to suggest that it was a popular Jewish opinion that angels had left their heavenly estate done unwholesome things with women, produced something that simply could not be blessed by God. And in the Greek language, they seem to be referred to as giants. In the Hebrew language, giants or fallen ones. And God started over with someone like Noah. Now, I know this is not new believers' information usually, right? But God saw fit to put it in the sixth chapter of the beginning of this book. Maybe this is because this book is a story about man created in the pure, beautiful, unadulterated image of God. And he's told to multiply that image everywhere. But it became corrupted in more than one way. It became corrupted spiritually, and it became corrupted physically. And the Bible is the story about the restoration of that man back to the image of God, both spiritually and physically. Don't you wake up in a glorified body when this is all said and done? Amen. 
Is that not the hope of the gospel? Doesn't that begin to make sense then? As we think about these things, some of you that have spent serious time in school, unlike myself, may remember that a guy named Hesiod wrote down Greek mythology. He's considered the father of Greek mythology. Where did Hercules come from? Where did any of those gods come from? Didn't they say that there was a pantheon, a kind of godly council of heavenly beings? And some left their heavenly estates? And, and by the way, for instance, Hercules, what was he the product of? Was he the product of something that was heavenly and something that was earthly? And what was he? Was, could you call him a mighty man of renown? Oh, pastor, are you saying the Bible teaches Greek mythology? No, please don't be dull. What I'm saying is those are corruptions of the biblical truth. Do you know that when Moses was writing this book, Troy, Athens, and Thebes were being founded as cities? What we call ancient Greek history was just beginning when Moses was writing. Don't you think he's in a pretty authoritative position? When Homer wrote the uh, Odyssey or the Iliad, Solomon is reigning. We need to put world history in biblical history, and then it begins to start to make sense, doesn't it? Now, there's this book that doesn't make it into the canon of Scripture, and I'm not endorsing it, but if the Bible quotes a book, can, can I quote the book? Especially if I tell you up front it's not Scripture. The Bible quotes the book of Enoch. And, of course, when the Bible quotes the book of Enoch, that quote becomes Scripture. <laughs> because it has the Bible's endorsement, doesn't it? Now, I'm not telling you the book of Enoch Scripture. You certainly didn't hear me say that. What did you hear me say? That when the Bible quotes the book of Enoch, that quote becomes Scripture. I'm not trying to split hairs with you. I'm trying to say it, it's a good book to be read with caution, not as Scripture. In the 10th chapter of the book of Enoch, he calls these guys watchers and says, they are the product of something heavenly that left its estate, cohabitated with women, and they're giants. And I'm writing all of this down because they're killing us in wholesale fashion. They're trying to kill off everybody who is not like them. He actually says, they're eating us, Lord, and I want to write this down. Now, I'm not making this association, but I would like to tell you that most people take the word demon or Damien and associate it with cannibalism. All of this has some ancient root of a corruption of what God had made beautiful. And the Bible is the story of the restoration of what God called to be beautiful and had somehow become corrupted. Do you think that this is only an ancient account? Well, it's all ancient to us, but maybe let's just say that this book is being written between the 14th and the 16th century B.C., right? Is that fair enough? There was a flood that most scholars place around 2400 B.C., and since we're B.C., these numbers go backwards, just so that you know that's somewhere around a thousand years before the Bible was being written, this flood occurred. And he says in Genesis 6, it happened then, and it happened afterwards. So tell me something, later, after the flood, were there ever giants mentioned in the Bible? Yeah. I mean, don't we tell our kids stories about a man named Gath, or from Gath? named Goliath, who was nine feet tall. Doesn't that sound like a giant mm -hmm. to you? I promise that's going to get a lot clearer. <coughs> Isn't it fun to look into the Word? Mm -hmm. Did you ever think that the Word was boring? It's only boring if you don't read it. 
It's only boring if you read it but pay no attention to what it says. It's only boring if you decide in advance that it's boring. What other book in the world contains shipwrecks, snake bites, raisings from the dead, chariots of fire, angelic appearances, wheels within wheels that I still don't know what they are? And then descriptions like this. Tell me, Jules Verne could never have come up with something as pretty as this. And it communicates a message to your spirit if you're willing to receive it. Now, when I mention ancient accounts, I would like you to know <coughs> that the Newer Testament seems to refer to these things as well. Would it be okay if I read a few of them? Mm -hmm. Let's do that together then. Turn with me to 1 Peter. Keep your finger in Genesis 6. Tell me when you're in 1 Peter. One of you's there. Are the rest of you getting there? Are you working at it? Okay. My pages are stuck together. Okay. Now we're in 1 Peter. Given what I've told you, let's shed some light on this. Um, how about 17th verse? 1 Peter 3, 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the <coughs> spirits in prison. Well, that's a strange thing. What did he preach? Preach means proclaim. So are we really saying that Jesus went and proclaimed uh, salvation to somebody in prison? Oh, I don't think so. What did God proclaim to the serpent? He proclaimed the way in which he was going to beat him, didn't he? Through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Well, who were they? What's verse 27? Who disobeyed long ago when Noah waited patiently in the days, I'm sorry, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Let me see. While Noah was building the ark, what had happened? Didn't we say that the sons of God had cohabitated with women? Is it possible to make this association? Or should we assume that Peter's talking about something else that is not referred to anywhere else in Scripture? <coughs> What if he said it in his second letter as well? Turn with me to 2 Peter. Look at the second chapter and the fourth verse. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And it goes on. Do you hear how both accounts have spirits that disobey? Both accounts have spirits in prison, and both accounts mention Noah and the flood? Isn't it reasonable to assume that he's talking about Genesis 6? Or should we just say, we don't believe in the supernatural. He must be talking about Seth's descendants somehow. Doesn't that seem absurd? You know, you can only sell those commentaries if somebody buys them. <clears throat> I mean, it's just a thought. Well, maybe Peter was just a weirdo, you know? Maybe it was just, just Peter. Why don't we look at the book of Jude? I mean, Jude's not at all related to Jesus, is he? Mm -hmm. Is Jude related to Jesus, brothers? Yeah. Oh, did I say brothers? <laughs> Jude is a brother of Jesus. You want to know what Jesus grew up hearing? Well, maybe he grew up hearing some of the same things that Jude grew up hearing. Look at verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these He has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great 
dead. By the way, then he goes to the next major judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, after the flood in the book of Genesis. It seems as if he's walking through history in the same order that Peter did, in the same order that the book of Genesis covers it. Now let's just imagine something. Let's imagine that you are the enemy, and that you have heard, the seed of a woman's going to crush my head. So you set underfoot a plot. Let's see if we can corrupt the seed of the woman so that it's not possible. If there's something on the earth other than the seed of the woman, then maybe it won't happen. But, you know, God's smarter than you. He outwits you. He picks somebody that is righteous morally and he's <laughs> blameless physically and he starts again, eight people in all. Then what would you do? Well, you might listen and see if you could figure out which of the sons it would be. <coughs> Did one of the sons of Noah dishonor his father? What was Noah doing as soon as he got off the boat? He didn't run, right? Do you think the enemy was hard at work to corrupt the sons of Noah? Who's a, who's a major figure after Noah? Somebody that God spoke to. Somebody who was a friend of God. Abraham. Abraham. Now we've made it all the way to 2000 B.C. Look at Genesis 15 and read to me the 13th verse. Actually, I'll read it so it gets on the internet so we'll be sure to be branded weirdos. Look at the 12th verse, 15-12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. He goes on to give him the rest of the Abrahamic promise. Why would you tell Abram 400 years in advance, you guys are going to go into slavery, and then I'm going to bring you out, and you're going to go take the promised land? See, the enemy's listening to this too, and he goes, oh, they're going to be otherwise occupied for 400 years? What would you be doing in the promised land if you could? Would you be setting booby traps? Would you be setting pitfalls for the people? Would you be surprised to know that the seven nations that Israel had to conquer when they came into the promised land all had giants in them? Isn't that an interesting thing? It happened in Genesis 6, and Genesis 6, 4 said, and after that, also, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Let me ask you something, friends. Do you have a calling on your life? We say that the Lord orders our footsteps. We say that we are led by the Spirit. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert, who was waiting for Him? We have an adversary. He's an opponent. He's our accuser. He's the one that stands against us. And he knows what you're called to as well because he heard the same promise you did. We have this idea. Oh, friends, God has called us, so it's just, it's just going to happen, Matthew. I don't got to do anything, man. Sit back and receive. Is this what God said about the promised land? He said, I have given it to you. Go fight and take it. I want to encourage you about your calling, that you're not the only one that knows what your calling is, and the enemy has a full-time job to seed your calling with opposition, so that when you bump into resistance, you might go, I'm like a grasshopper compared to, I can't do this, and go find something else to do. He knows that if he can lay enough discouragement in front of most people, they'll quit. 
By the way, you never know how close you come to succeeding when you give up. Yeah. You don't know whether you'd have got it on the next swing. You don't know whether you'd have got it on the next try. You have no idea. You know why? Because you quit. You ought to hear Paul Young Cho talk about the first time that he had to deal with a demon in a service. It's really, I'm not singing Paul Young Cho's praises, but I loved how humble he was. He said, I had no idea what I was doing. I was scared to death. There was a psychologist there. He said, but I knew that this guy had, had, a, had a demon present. He said he saw it in the spirit. So he said, come out. And it said, no. <laughs> he said, come out in the name of Jesus. And it said, no. After hours of this, he's embarrassed. Most people have gone home. He doesn't know what to do. He said, I was tired. I said, come out. He said, the demon was tired. He said, no. <laughs> He said, in about that moment, he felt a rush of power from on high that he didn't have before. And when he commanded it, it came out. He said, the man standing in his right mind told him later, he said, I could hear the voices in my head. I could hear them speaking in my head. And they said, if we could hang on just a little longer, he'll quit. He doesn't know what he's doing. If we can hang on just a little longer, he'll quit. If we can hang on just a little longer, he'll quit. Friends, this is insight. This is insight. The devil will see your path with opposition to get you to quit. The biggest enemy of the church at the moment is apathy, friends. We act like the kingdom of God will just come upon us without doing anything, and he called you to forcefully advance it. You believe that God's called you to marry Stephanie. Is that going to happen if you don't talk to Stephanie, friend? It's not going to happen. Is it, is it, is it going to happen that the business you're called to start, Steve, is it going to happen if you sit and play solitaire all day? It will not happen. And it's the same thing. You believe God called you to this ministry? Then get all out of it that you can get out of it. You believe God called you to the abortion clinic? Then do it with all of your heart and don't quit. Somewhere inside the people of God, there's got to be a Holy Ghost passion that rises up. One that says, I will not be denied what God has called me to. Come angels defecting hell or literally Noahic high water. I will follow the Lord. And unfortunately, what we see the most of is kind of a, yeah, this is true. That gets you nothing, friends. We can all firmly lay our hand on what the problem is, but if nobody does anything about the problem, you know what you still got? Problem. A problem. So let's look at Deuteronomy 1. Come on. Somebody encourage your pastor. Amen. Deuteronomy 21. <coughs> I'm sorry, 1. Let's look at verse 26. You know this story. It says, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Just receive it, brethren. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So He brought us up out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. It's everybody's fault but mine. They said the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Now that might not mean much to you, but keep your finger there. And let's go to Numbers 13 and hear the telling of the same story from a little different perspective. Are you in Numbers 13? You're getting there though, right? Yeah. 
and he's got some armor on, right? Just like some chainmail. It's not all of his armor, just, just the shirt he's wearing. It's 125 pounds, right? This is not an NBA basketball player, right? This is like somebody took a tight end and stretched him wide and stretched him tall. Would you take notice of that? Might people of different languages all have a special name for him? What I'm trying to say is when God called his people into this land, the enemy had had 400 years to try to put giants in their way. And he tries to put giant problems in your way too. And most people go, we're not able to do it. Raise the money for Romania, I can't do it. Move to Sugar Land, can't do it. I mean, everything's stacked against me. I'm such a victim. I mean, people don't say they're a victim, but they say they're a victim, don't they? People don't like me because of the color of my skin. People don't like me because of my accent. People don't like me because of where I'm from. Maybe they don't like you because of you. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's none of those things. Or maybe it is all of those things. I don't know, but I know this. I can do anything God called me to do, despite what people think. Everywhere you go, somebody's not going to like you. The last thing we need is a chip on our shoulder that's an excuse to be a victim. I mean, that's just the truth. It's never helped any people. Not any people of any color, not any people of any geographical aid has never helped anyone to have a chip on the shoulder that allows them to be a victim. And the worst grouping of people to be victims in the world are those who have been brought from death to life. Those who have the almighty power of the resurrection in them. What? If you're a victim, then what is Christ? See, my friends. The enemy puts giants in front of us so that we don't see ourselves rightly. How many times have you been hard on those Israelites? I mean, God said they could go in and take the land, right? But why didn't they go in and take the land? Oh, the problem was they saw themselves so small. No, the problem was is they looked out there and they saw how big those guys were. <laughs> you remember when we had to play that playoff game in North Louisiana? I, still, I, I might still have a footprint on my back back here somewhere. You know? <coughs> Matthew and I made a joint tackle in that game. One foot went in Matthew's face mask, and the other foot went in mine, and he fell down. You know? D, that was back when Jermaine Sharp was playing. Still high school ball. The game before that had Manning's kid in it. What's his name? Peyton Manning. No, we're older than Eli. Right? We felt like we were playing football against the five Can you understand why? We, we lined up, we looked out there, and went, we have to play with them? You know? Really, that's, that's not a professional team that has showed up on high school. They have beards, Lord. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, that down lineman has, has a child my age. <laughs> Is it just because we were looking at ourselves? No, we were also looking at them. The devil had put some impressive opposition in their way. And he put impressive opposition in their way because his head is riding on the outcome. Come on now. His head is riding on the outcome. What are the children of Israel supposed to do? They're supposed to stomp on his head. Amen. <laughs> what are you supposed to do? His head is on the line, friends, so he's going to resist you. He's going to resist you. You're supposed to be in a fight. You put the right kind of dog and the right kind of cat in a box and you're going to get a fight. They lay down together. Then they're both from San Francisco. I don't know what to say. But Christians are not supposed to be this way. We're supposed to be looking to step on the enemy's head. His name means our opposition. Why do we act surprised when there's opposition? 
My goodness, my goodness, we made this so Sunday schoolish. Let's remove everything supernatural. There's God, there's the devil, and if God says it, it happens. Well, yes and no. What if I show you scriptures where God said it and it didn't happen? You know why it didn't happen in 2 Kings 3? It didn't happen because the people of God didn't want what God said as bad as the devil wanted to oppose what God said. The king of Moab killed his firstborn son on the city wall, and the things that God said Israel would do, they didn't get to do. You know why? The Hebrew says the fury was great against them. They satisfied with most of what God called them to do, but they stopped short. Come on now, are you stopping short of what God's called? Have, have you called this much good when God said go the whole way? Yeah? See, you admire the guy. You admire David for walking out saying, there's a giant to be knocked down? I'll do it. No, no, no. You're not able to do it. Why do they say you're not able to do it? Because they don't think they're able to do it. Because y'all don't understand. <laughs> He's not defying me. The Lord God is who he's defined. We need to begin to drag our problems into the presence of God. The enemy has seeded your life with problems. Of course it's not easy. You want to do good, what did Paul say is right there with you? Evil. There is an opposition to you. It's not supposed to be a bed of roses. Amen. If it was a bed of roses, then you have not yet found what God has called you to do. It will be hard. And we're supposed to we're supposed to want to step on his hand, friends. I met a little old lady, the first charismatic church I ever went to. I thought they were all crazy. <coughs> and she showed me the bottom of her shoes. She had Satan written on both of them. <laughs> I figured if an 80-year-old lady can feel like she's dancing on Satan when she's dancing around, then it might be something in it for me. <laughs> I don't know what we were talking about, but I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy 3. There. 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 3.8 So at that time we took from these two kings of the Amorites the territory east of the Jordan from the Arnon Gorge as far as Mount Hermon. Hermon is called Sirion by the Sidonians and the Amorites call it Sinir. We took all of the towns of the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Selica and the Edari and towns of Og's kingdom in Bashan. Only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephites, giants. Well, maybe it doesn't mean that. His bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. That's not just fat, friends. <laughs> That's tall. It's steel and rubber of the Ammonites. Og was a Rephite. He was a giant. And he was one of the last in that area that they were able to whip. But they whipped him. Of course, the whole generation gave up and died first. This was a second generation. Don't you? Thank you. Yeah, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Michael got me sick while we were doing Florida. <laughs> a whole generation failed to do what God told them to do. Their bodies fell in the desert. You know what? That's all the problems is just to... John. Of course, an 85-year-old man named Caleb. Isn't that a good name, Joella? Caleb, she named her son that. The Bible says he had a different spirit. He 
He said, I'm just as strong at 85 years old as I was 40 years ago when we came. If you give me a chance, I'll go in and whip him. And he did. <laughs> I mean, I met a lot of old men that threatened to whip people, Curtis. But this one actually did. <laughs> I mean, I met some guys on the golf course that, you know, they were Mike Tyson as long as you were 200 feet away. But when he got close, their courage failed. Caleb's didn't. You know, he went in and laid waste. Read the book of Joshua. And he raised up others who did. He raised up a, a, a young man named Othiniel who led Israel in the book of the Judges. He taught people to kill giants. What is your life teaching people to do? Is it encouraging people to knock down giants? Let's look at 1 Chronicles. <coughs> We're going to move into the time period of David. 1 Chronicles, tell me when you're in the 20th chapter. I know some of you thought pastor was going weird, preaching on UFOs. You know, all of those things are silliness because people don't know what the word actually says. There's enough supernatural stuff in the word, you don't have to invent it. I mean, you don't. You don't, you don't have to find things that aren't actually written in the text. There's enough written in the text to make you scratch your head. Yeah. Enough to say, Lord, could you help me? I don't think I understand. Praise God, some bold men like Phineas Dink. Bold men stepped forward and said, you know what I think it means? Exactly what it says. <laughs> and the scholars of their day considered them crazy, but they didn't want to debate with them. You know why they didn't want to debate with them? Because they knew they knew the word, and the word will set you free, friend. The truth will set you free. First uh, Chronicles 20. Let's pick up in the fourth verse. In the course of time, war broke out with the Philistines at Gezer. <laughs> at the time of Sebekai, the Hushiite killed Sephi, one of the descendants of the Rephites. By the way, some translations say descendant of the giant. And the Philistines were subjugated. In another battle, the Philistine with the Philistines, uh, Elhanan, son of Jair, killed Lahamai, brother of Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers, that's not Princess Bride, six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He was a descendant of, of a descendant from Rapha, giant. You know, we go on and on and on with these. Turn to 2 Samuel 21. Then we'll stop going on and on with it because I believe you believe me. And if you don't believe me, then you're not going to believe me. So we're 2 Samuel 21. This is another retelling of the same event, really. Look at verse 16. <coughs> Actually, let's pick up in verse 15. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. I guess so. They were big dudes. And Ishbi, Benah, one of the descendants of Rapha, the giant, whose, uh, lost it, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel may not be extinguished. 
They understood that the house of David was an important house because the seed of the woman would come through that house. And we could not let these giants kill the promise of God. Come on now, friends. Do you go to rescue the promise of God in your brother? Do you look and say, J.J., don't get discouraged. You're called to do it. We can do it, man. Look, what's facing you? I'll help you in it. I'll work with you. I will go help you knock down that giant because the promise of God in your life rests upon you. Or do we just go, <clears throat> forgive me, older folks, sucks to be you, J.J. <coughs> and look the other way while it gets run over. I mean, is that what we do? How many times have you seen somebody step out in faith and they're trying to get somebody out of a wheelchair? Step out in faith and they try to do something great for God and, and maybe it didn't work out. Maybe the giant stepped on them that day and we go, <laughs> I knew that wasn't God. Really? Because the men who fought at David's side, who is a, a, a type of Jesus, said, don't let a weakness overcome. He's exhausted. Go help him. The promise of God is more important. Go help him. I'd like to see brothers pitching in to help each other because the promise of God in Joel's life rests on Joel. The promise of God in Mario's life rests on Mario, and I can't do it for him, but I can stand with him and encourage him doing it. Amen. See, our, our, our friend Eric Hill, who, who is a, a, an overseer in this church, he tried to tell us that spiritual warfare was not an individual thing. He tried to tell us that the book of Ephesians is addressing a whole community because you shared your brother's lot. You stood together with the belt of truth. You stood together with the sword of the Spirit. You stood together with the shield of faith. You stood together. We lift up the one-man shows in today's ministry. I'm trying, saints. I'm trying. But you know what you've got to have in you? you got to have a Holy Ghost passion that says, I want to kill a giant. Yeah, yeah. I want to kill a giant. You can't sit back and say, maybe Matt will do it. You can't sit back and say, maybe Eric will do it. You know what? I'll be silent because I don't want anybody to know that I haven't killed any giants yet. You have to have some Holy Ghost chutzpah. That's Jewish for backbone. Not really. It's, it's, it's guts. It's <laughs> intestinal fortitude. It's, I don't know, I don't know how to define chutzpah, but you know what? You know it when you see it, don't you, Zeke? Come on. It's when everybody else slinks in a hole. You know, Michael Jordan said, winners find a way, losers find an excuse. And boy, he was, he was right. Come on now. Next time we pray. Next time we get together, it ought to be brimming with the Word. It ought to be your chance. It ought to be your chance. It ought to be your chance. We can't sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. Come on now. I love that our society lifts up a man of God. I love that they admire a man of God. I don't love that they sit back and wait for that man of God to do what they so obviously are called to do themselves. Come on. You should never exalt a leader to the place that you are in active. You ever been to a job? Let's, let's ten of us go build something. <coughs> ten of us, we're going to go build it, but there was only one hammer? <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> Don't work with people like that. What do they want you for if, they, if, if, if you're not allowed to bring a hammer? Come on, in this church, you got to have a hammer. 
Nobody's saying, look, watch me build, watch me pray, watch me preach. What we're saying is, come, come knock down some giants with us. We're saying, if I can do it, you can do it. We're saying, come on, doesn't somebody want to try? Yeah. We're saying, love me enough to rescue me if I'm failing. That's what we're saying. Come on now. I spent today shivering. I spent today in cold sweats. I spent the day sick. Probably could have called somebody to preach. But I like to knock down giants. Amen. Come on now. Amen. I shouldn't have to ask you to preach. All of you should be lining up and asking me all of the time. You know, my pastor never had to ask me to preach. I'm just going to be honest. He told me no 364 times. Every once in a while, I wore him down. I want you to want to knock down giants because Jesus wants you to knock down giants. Don't let the enemies in the land keep you from doing what God called you to do. Tell everybody, get out of my way. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. Whether it's Anak, or you want to call him a Zanzamite, or you want to call him an Emite, or you want to call him whatever you want to call him, get out of my way because you stand between me and the promise. And I will not be denied. Come on, church. Come on, church. I think probably you understand what I'm saying about the seating of opposition. So let's spend just a little bit of time on the answer. You know, I, I probably got a good eight minutes. <clears throat> I might take a couple more than that, but rather than just tell you the answer, let me ask you a couple interesting scriptures. We get to Matthew 22, 22 30, and they say, ah, if you're if you're lucky enough to take part in the resurrection, Darren, you'll be like the angels. You'll neither marry nor give in marriage. Oh, this means that those angels were sexless. This means that those angels were not able to produce children. This means... No, it doesn't say anything like that. It says that in the resurrection, you won't give in marriage or be given in marriage. There'll be no lifelong commitments to a spouse to multiply the presence of God on the earth because the presence of God will already be complete on the earth. What about this one, though? What, what, what about Matthew 24, 37? You know, the coming of the Son of Man, it'll be as it was in the days of Noah. People be eating and drinking right up until Noah went into the ark. But what if we're not just talking about eating and drinking? What else was going on in the days of Noah? What if we even have heavenly defections? What if it is so bad that if the people of God didn't stand up and knock down some giants, the giants would eat the human race? Come on now. What if it was so dark that only the coming of the Son of God would pierce that darkness and shed light everywhere? What if it was so filled with violence on the earth that if it were not for a righteous remnant, there would be nothing in the human race worth redeeming? Has anybody ever read the book of Revelation? Mm. Come on now. Tell me what you see coming out of the sea. Tell me what you see coming from the skies. Is it more or less supernatural than we've already read in the book of Genesis? Don't fall into the, to the idea of saying that was just an ancient account. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is it will be then like it was back then. It may even be that way now. We just need to look around. Okay? I can answer some of those theological questions for you, but not tonight. Well, this happened before the flood and it happened after that. Does it still happen today? I think there's a heavenly line drawn in the sand. 
I think the cross of Christ has separated the heavenly sheep from the heavenly goats. And what happened in the heavens is happening on the earth now. I think the devil knows his time is short. I think he's filled with fury. He may not have a chance to have angels defect anymore, but he has certainly laid opposition in your path. So what do we do about that opposition? Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. Should I just preach a good message on grace? Should I agree to tell you what you already know, but in some new and exciting way? Should I just play it safe so that maybe you'll tithe, be quiet, and go home? I mean, is this, the, is this what we want from our religious leaders? Because those are the most popular churches you can find. I want to knock down giants. I don't want to sit on my salvation. Amen. Amen. I, I want to go do something. I want to carry a hammer, friends. Thor's got nothing on the body of Christ. I guess if we're going to read Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 17, we are to pick up with the answer. Would that be good? Why don't we start in verse uh, 43. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come up here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Isn't this what the enemy always does? He's trying to intimidate you. And does David have a reason to be intimidated? He's a little guy. He's a young guy. His own brothers don't think he can do it. The guy who tried to loan him armor doesn't think he can do it. His dad didn't think he was worth bringing out of the field to the battle. David just saw himself as a victim, Matthew. Where would the world be? Something began to rise up in David, though. He began to meet that intimidation with something. He met it with the promise of God. When he was told that he'd be eviscerated, when he was told that his flesh would be torn apart, how did he answer? <laughs> David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. I come against you with the authority of the living God. I come against you with the promise of God. It is not you who faces your problem. It's the promise of God that faces your problem. You just stand in the promise. You just do what you are called to do, and it will be fine. The writer of Micah could get so excited. He said, don't gloat over me, my enemy. <laughs> Though I've been struck down, yet will I rise again. Don't get all excited. Even if I sit in darkness, the Lord will make it light for me again. You know why? He was standing in the promise of God. So Micah got to say things like, but as for me, I am filled with power. He was standing in the promise of God. That's Micah 3.8. He was filled with power. He also got to prophesy about God's nation becoming a nation again in a single day. Where did he get the guts for things like that? knew what it was to stand in the promise of God and face down the giants in this day. What will build your courage, my friends? Zechariah 4.6 is one that we make t-shirts out of, but do we live it? It says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What was Zechariah facing? I could never build a temple like that, that first temple. Zerubbabel's temple won't even compare to something. They're all going to laugh at me. It wasn't by your abilities anyway. Stand in the promise of the man of God and this mountain will become level ground before you, the fourth chapter says. It'll be crushed before you. It'll be dirt under your feet. 
What will happen for Well, I, I can't do it like he can do it. I'll never have the life that so-and-so had. If you stand in the promise of God, of God, whatever the mountain is, you can speak to it, Jesus said, and it would be removed into the sea. But we explain away the promise. We stand under the domination of the giant, and we all have a covenant not to notice. I'm saying stand up, kill something. If we're going to be in a fight, Michael, we might as well take a swing, right? I've been in a few that there was no way I could win. But I wanted him to know I was there. Okay. Matthew was with me one night. A guy hit me so hard, I still don't remember it, but Matt does. <laughs> Second Chronicles 32. Hezekiah. 32.7. Hezekiah is facing Sennacherib. And he says, relax, guys. Greater is the power that is with us than it is with him. Come on, you check me, you think I'm wrong. Second Chronicles 32 7. Greater is the power with us than with them. You know what's crazy about that? There's no way in the natural that's true. Hezekiah was outmanned. Hezekiah was outgunned, so to speak. Hezekiah's own people were saying, Send a sheriff, please don't speak to us in a language the people can understand. We're scared. Send a sheriff's commander actually said, You know what we're going to do to you, Hebrews? I'm sorry, ladies. He said, we're going to make you drink your urine and eat your own filth. Except it doesn't say filth. It was intimidating. Intimidating is all get out. And did they have a reason to believe that it was possible this could happen? Yeah. God had said that if they were unfaithful, this would happen. But Hezekiah was not unfaithful. He believed that the promise of God on his nation was bigger than the threat against his nation. And he stood for freedom. And he stood for the power and the presence of God when all others cowered. And so God sent him a word. He sent him a word and he said, what's taking root below? Faith in you is about to bear fruit above. Hezekiah went back encouraged and God sent an angel to kill a giant because it was a giant too big for Hezekiah to kill. That angel killed 185,000 men in one night. How many problems can you amass? Mm. You can't amass enough problems. They want not even one angel couldn't handle. Psalm 20 is one of those songs that's become cheesy to us, but it wouldn't be cheesy in that day. Psalm 20 verses 6 and 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but what will we trust in? The name of the Lord our God. You want to know how to knock down the giants that have been seated in your path? You have to trust God more than you trust your own eyes. You have to trust God more than your own ability to reason it out. You have to trust God more than your finances when buying tickets to Romania. See, we get a chance to live everything that we preach. The devil will make sure of that, and God will see us through it. The world can smell a hypocrite, can't they? Praise God. Let's not one, let one be found in this room. I'm going to read with you one last verse, and then we'll move on. Turn with me to 1 John. The whole reason that I talk to you about fantastic stories about angels cohabitating with women and the giant offspring and the problems facing Noah. <coughs> Did Noah pick up a sword? Did Noah have an angel show up and bail him out. In fact, 
there's not a single miracle that you ever even see in Noah's life. You know what Noah was? He was morally upright. He was physically sound. And he was <coughs> Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, this is 1 John 5, is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out His commands. Did Noah carry out the commands of God? How many commands do you know that he was given? Ten? Was he given ten? Was he given nine? How many commands was Noah given that you can remember? <laughs> Build a boat. Build a boat. Was that a bigger than life task? Well, yeah, it took him hundred years. Was it something that was unseen? I don't think there'd ever been a boat like that one. You know, it wouldn't need a rudder. It wouldn't need a sail. It'd just be a big floating box. Right? Carried out the commands. Look at verse 3. This is love for God to obey His commands. And His commands are not... His commands are not... Burdens. It's not His commands that are required. It's the demonic seeding of problems in your life. His commands are the answer. They are not the problem. But all too often Christians say, you know, because I'm a Christian I have to do this. If I was in the world I would do... Be careful, friends. If you want leeks and onions, then God might give them to you. His commands are not the problem. The giants are the problem. Stick to the commands and look what happens. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Everybody says they believe it, but who acts like it? Everybody says they believe it, but do they believe it when they're facing the giant? You know, it's a whole side note. We're not going to preach on it now because we're going to close right here. But you ever wonder? Why David picked up five stones? There's four brothers. I read you both passages where the four brothers are mentioned. They're not called brothers, but they're all from the same town and they're all giants. I think David was not just prepared to kill one of them. I think he was loading his little shepherd's sack to wipe out the whole giant problem. How about you? How about, how about you? Stand your feet. We'll pray together.